Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Convocation. Take your time as you're settling in, finding your seats. My name is Kevin Seidel. Uh, I teach literature and English here at EMU. And one of the things I love about teaching fiction and teaching poetry is that uh, if our reading goes well, our conversation goes well, those works of literature can open up uh, aspects of the world that we wouldn't have been able to see without that literature. Um, the world can look different. Uh, different things can be possible after we've read uh, a great work of literature. And uh, a few days ago, I, asked, I was asked to introduce um, our speakers today, uh, Dr. Betty Kilby, Fisher Baldwin, and Phoebe Kilby. And so I kind of frantically thought I better know something, learn something about them and their book. Um, so I, I'm about halfway through the book right now. Um, and as I was reading and hearing uh, the, their own stories, the stories about how they met, the history of Virginia, the history of EMU that are sort of connected in their stories, I thought it's not just great literature or great poetry that can show us different possibilities in the world, but um, really the lives and actions of really wonderful, great people. Um, so I think you'll get a feel for um, their stories when they are here um, as they're sharing, and I hope that afterwards you'll um, get their book and read it uh, just to see that a different world is possible and that different world is kind of already here in them. Before they come to the stage, uh, I wanted to invite up Evelina Yavni, uh, one of our students here at EMU. Um, she is from Ukraine and uh, she was asked just to pick a piece that is helping her sort of um, pay attention and just uh, feel what is happening uh, in her country. And so it's uh, a piece by Bach, and that Adagio from Bach's Sonata Number no. 1. So, uh, Evelina, come on up. And yeah, welcome her to the stage. Thanks, Evelina. Thank you. 
Thank you, Evelina. Dr. Betty Kilby Fisher Baldwin grew up in rural Culpeper and Warren counties, Virginia. She was a pioneer in school desegregation. Thanks to her father's determination, she entered and graduated from Warren County High School after suing the school board based on the landmark Supreme Court Brown versus Board of Education decision of 1954. Betty started her employment as a factory worker and climbed the corporate ladder to achieve executive management employment. Betty holds a BA in business management from Shenandoah University, an MBA from Nova University, and an honorary doctorate in humane letters from Shenandoah University. After she retired, she wrote and published her autobiography, Wit, Will, and Walls. Betty speaks frequently with Phoebe about making connections across the racial divide to create a more just and peaceful world. Phoebe Kilby grew up in Baltimore and graduated from Bryn Mawr in 1970. After obtaining a BS in botany and a master's degree in environmental management from Duke University, she had a long career as an urban and environmental planner. With concerns about the morality and wisdom of war, Phoebe went back to school in 2003 to obtain a graduate certificate in conflict transformation from the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding, Eastern Mennonite University. Here at EMU, she discovered the restorative justice movement and a new group forming called Coming to the Table. She and Betty are here to tell you about how discovery of Coming to the Table and their connected personal family histories led them to meet. It's their formal biography, and, and just before they come to the stage, I thought I would read just a, a small portion from the book. I hope you heard in their biographies how sort of accomplished both these women were bef before they meet, before their lives sort of cross paths. Um, and so it's sort of fantastic to see what happens afterwards together. And this is the sort of moment of their crossing when um, Phoebe writes an email to Betty that uh, I, I didn't ask you to about this, but I'm just going to read it just because I think it's such a fantastic email. Do you read it? So I'm going to let her read it when she gets here. But welcome them both to the stage now. Good morning. I am Betty Kilby Baldwin. My ancestors were slaves. And I am Phoebe Kilby, a descendant of persons who once enslaved Betty's family. And we have come to the table. Phoebe and I were inspired to meet and to get to know each other by coming to the table, an organization and a movement focused on racial reconciliation through honest truth-telling, deep connection, genuine forgiveness, and sincere actions to make amends for the harms of slavery and its legacies. The name coming to the table refers to Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, when he says, I have a dream that the sons of former slaves and former slave owners will be able to sit down together 
at the table of brotherhood, and we say sisterhood. The book Cousins is our coming to the table story. So I discovered coming to the table uh, after I got my degree here, I came to work here in 2006. Um, I worked in the development office as a fundraiser for the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding. So when I arrived here in August, I heard that there was a group that had met earlier in the year on campus. They had been sponsored by CJP, and they were calling themselves Coming to the Table. And they were inspired by that Martin Luther King, I have a dream speech, that part. And you know, it got me thinking, did my family enslave people? I really didn't know, but that group was meeting and I was inspired to look into this. See, I had grown up in Baltimore, Maryland, and my father had grown up in Virginia where the enslaving had, cur had occurred, but he'd never said a word about it. But you know, when I think about it, I really should have had, I should have been more suspicious about this. Maybe I just didn't want to think about it. But there were many clues. First of all, my family's racial attitudes, particularly those of my father and my grandmother. Unfortunately, I remember very clearly when I was growing up, them saying very disparaging things about African Americans. And that's a nice way to put it. I knew the family had deep roots in Virginia since before the American Revolution. And then, you know, I went from Baltimore and got my schooling in North Carolina. I eventually ended up in Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley near Woodstock, you know where that is, in 1994. And at that time, I subscribed to the local newspaper there, the Northern Virginia Daily, and I noticed there were Kilbys mentioned a lot in that newspaper and they were activists, and they were black. Now that should have given me a clue, right? But I, I just didn't look into it. But coming to the table gave me the courage to explore this aspect of my family's history. I began the research and quickly found that my family had enslaved people. I went to the Rappahannock County Historical Society and they had printed up, uh, cop this is ancient history, ancient technology. They'd actually copied the US Census um, figures for various years. And I had picked 1840 and looked up my great-great-grandfather. And there he was. He had two slaves. It was right there. And then I went to the courthouse. And I found uh, wills where uh, the estate inventory was listing slaves among the cows and the pigs and the plows and the kettles. It's pretty sobering to find this information. But of course I did some online research. I googled my last name, which I'd never done, and up came Betty. She had a website and she'd written a book entitled Wit, Will, and Walls. Well, I knew I had to read that book. So when I read it, boy, there were so many clues that we were connected. For example, I could see that her father grew up on a farm located within a mile of where my father grew up in Rappahannock County, Virginia. They had to have known of each other, but my father had never said a word about this, never said that there were black Kilbys living down the road. But I learned so much more from this book than just that. 
I learned that Betty and her family had been leaders in integrating Warren County High School in Front Royal, Virginia in 1958 and 59. It's an overwhelming story of bravery and grit. And Betty's gonna tell you more about this in a few minutes. But at this point, I didn't have proof that our families were connected. I only had this circumstantial information. So I went to one of the founders of Coming to the Table, Will Hairston. Is Will here? Yes, right there. He's, he's in the front. I couldn't see him. Hey, Will. He's filming. Um, I went to Will Hairston. He's a big part of this story. And I, I thought Will would give me genealogical research advice or something like that. No. He said, Phoebe, if you're going to want to figure this out, if you want to find the answer to your questions, you're going to have to contact Betty. Next week is Martin Luther King Day. That would be a good day to do it. <laughs> Whoa, I just in the last month figured out that my family had enslaved people, and he's telling me to contact Betty? But the more I thought about it, the more I thought Martin Luther King Day would be a good day to do it. And frankly, I have to say that having studied here at EMU and uh, studied with people around the world in conflict situations who were able to reach out to each other across deep divides, that gave me the courage to do this as well. I don't think I would have been able to without my EMU uh, faculty and staff and training and colleagues and students in the classes. So um, I'd like to uh, read for you now the email that I sent that Kevin, Dr. Kevin Sadell was about to read, but um, he was stealing my thunder, so. Um, <laughs> But thank you for the compliment <laughs> on, on, the, on the email. This is the email I sent Betty on Martin Luther King Day, 2007. She was Betty Kilby Fisher at the time. Dear Betty Kilby Fisher, oh, by the way, the subject line was an invitation to conversation. Dear Betty Kilby Fisher, my name is Phoebe Kilby and I am white. My father grew up in Rappahannock County, Virginia, near where your father grew up, and I've been doing some research on my family and have also read your book. Having no definitive answers, I suspect that our families had some kind of relationship in the past. I admire very much your courage and the courage of your father and family during the civil rights era and since. It would be an honor to talk to you someday and meet you. I live about 25 miles from Front Royal. Through conversations, we both might find out a little more about our family's pasts. Martin Luther King had a dream that the sons of former slave owners and the son sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. Perhaps we as daughters can contribute to fulfilling that dream. I hope to hear from you and to hear that you are interested in conversing with me. Well, I hit send and there was nothing. A day went by, no response. Then two days, then a week, then almost two weeks. And I just thought, well, she doesn't want to talk to somebody like me. Why, why would she? So I went back to Will Hairston, who would not let me off the hook. He and other coming to the table people said, well, Phoebe, your first email was okay, but you know, you need to tell more about yourself. You need to send another email. <laughs> So I did that, and I'm not going to read that whole thing, but 
when I, after I sent it, within an hour or so, I got a response from Betty. You know, it turned out she was having computer issues. <laughs> um, and the subject line of her email was, hello, cousin. Wow, isn't that something? I, I was truly touched. And her email was so open and welcoming. I didn't know if we were cousins, but I felt honored that she'd opened her heart enough to me to call me cousin. So now I'm going to turn the mic over to Betty, who will provide her perspective on our first meeting and also tell you her amazing story. Well, Phoebe suspected what I had known practically all my life, so it was only natural for me to respond, hello, cousin. But here's my reply to Phoebe. Phoebe, if you're asking yourself why I am so emotional, the Cultural Innovations email address gets full of spam mail and it's often down. I went to the site this morning and emails began to download. It could only have been God. We are the key to healing. Meeting you today is so awesome. People will find it hard to believe. I can't believe it. I've always known that we were descended from descendants of slaves but I couldn't open that door. We can not only contribute to Dr. King's dream, we can bring about racial reconciliation and healing to a nation of hurting people. That was in 2007. When I heard from Phoebe, I was going around the world selling my book and talking about forgiveness and love. The last thing I expected was a white woman to challenge me to live Dr. Martin Luther King's dream. Here she was. The documentary based on my book, Wit, Will, and Walls, was about to pre premiere. Without thinking, I invited Phoebe to our family dinner and the premiere. Well, I forgot to tell my family who was coming to dinner. <laughs> our family was gracious, but there were a few mutterings like, what are you looking for? How long are you going to hang around? Where's my 40 acres and a mule? Didn't bother either one of us. At the premiere, I introduced Phoebe and her sister. I told the audience, tonight we are living Dr. Martin Luther King's dream as sons and daughters of former slaves and former slave owners at the table of brotherhood. It was truly a night to remember. And then we played the documentary that you will see now. See, supreme being seen as many things, but no one seems to see love reigns. Emotional cascade wet all, bathe them in a sense of self-confidence and purpose before and after the sermons, all the preaching. What are we teaching the children? Teaching one another. So much of the focus on civil rights history and scholarship has been on the triumphs and the strategies to achieve those triumphs. And so the focus was on those legal cases and how they uh, constructed an argument and put the community behind these children and then got them into the school and then left them in that school. Betty Kilby Fisher's story 
takes us to a deeply personal place in which we have to face some of what happened to individual students as a result of efforts to desegregate the schools. What she is accomplishing now is something that Americans never accomplished in 1900. Uh, we've never had uh, an opportunity to look back over the dark history uh, of slavery and race relations in our country and to look these institutions squarely in the eye and to seek understanding and reconciliation. Much of the beauty of her book is in the complexity, and the soul loves complexity. Things aren't neat and cut and dried. As she's been telling to many people during the last several years, helping move that shift in the center of gravity in American history ever farther forward, helping us all uh, come to grips uh, with all aspects of our history. him cry out and he was saying Lord I stretch my hands to thee no other help I know and I moved in to get closer and he was crying and I got scared Education was so important to the Kilby family, especially um, Betty's father, because he had lost land. He felt like had he been more educated, he would have been able to hold on to that land. And so what we learn is a young child who has agreed to be a plaintiff in one of the many cases that the NAACP litigates throughout Virginia ends up being uh, a victim on more than just a peripheral level. We like to think that Virginia is like the cradle of Southern society, some would say American society. And so people are very aware of their place in Virginia and they're very aware of stepping out of their place. Um, and so for people to push during the civil rights era to step out of the, these, uh, out of the status quo was just like an affront to, to civility, to gentility. The first event occurred on September the 15th, 1958 when Judge Sabloff ruled that based on the landmark Supreme Court decision, they couldn't deny me and 22 others from attending the only high school in the county. The governor of Virginia closed our schools rather than to comply with Sabloff's rulings. My school became the first school in the history of our nation to close because of the massive resistance loss. They actually believed, some of them, that if they resisted enough that they would get the Supreme Court to come to its senses and that the Supreme Court would change its mind. To me, massive resistance instead really exploded the myth that Virginia somehow presided over a superior system of race relations, that in fact that white supremacy in Virginia was always based upon the inferiority of African Americans and a belief that blacks were inferior 
and that while perhaps there was more latitude for blacks in Virginia to um, advance economically and educationally, there was always a, there, there was always a limit to that. There is such uh, strong feelings against desegregating the schools that the, the whites in power will close the schools before they will integrate the schools. This has an emotional and a psychological impact on the black child. Like water drops on dry earth's surface, one may search this globe four score and seven year, neither close nor near the truth. Religion may substitute for faith till all faith in religion, not God. Making someone else's decisions within your own life, your soul just ain't right, might be that it lacks love. So it's not till 1958 that these court cases have made their way through, you know, through the system, and that you finally have um, a series of judges um, in different parts of the state ordering that black students be admitted uh, into the white schools in Warren County, Charlottesville, and Norfolk. And the car stopped at the foot of the hill, and for a long time I wondered why they made us walk through that crowd. And as I got out the car, the reporters and policemen, the people were all lined up. And I walked past this big old fat white woman, and she yelled, we're gonna kill all you little niggas. And I remember Jimmy pushing me in the back because I had, had just paralyzed for a minute. And I remember saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's not that moment you walk in the door of the schoolhouse and that's it. It's the day-to-day -day grind. She said that not one white person reached out to her or befriended her. And it's such a simple thing, such a small act of kindness, but no one did it. And part of it, well, the, the main reason they didn't was fear that they might have even wanted to, but were afraid how others would treat them. I could prepare for a test, just knew that I was going to make an A on that test. Somebody would come along and say something mean and ugly, and that rage that I recognized came forth. And in the midst of rage, you can't think. Those children, all of the children, the nameless children, were the soldiers who went out there and fought that battle day after day, because it really was a war. I always felt guilty about going through the auditorium because the school officials oftentimes locked those doors. And they locked those doors with the purpose of keeping us from crossing over. And it was probably something that was going to keep us safe. And yet I continually went through those doors. She was beginning to feel confident, beginning to let her guard down. And unfortunately, uh, that's when other people took advantage and she was raped. Then all of a sudden, it's taken from her. You almost feel yourself being catapulted down this tunnel when she went into this deep depression. 
Of course, that would be one way in which um, the system of white supremacy would target black activism. When I was reading her book and thinking about that attack that she suffered in the auditorium, and I can, I was just so, I can imagine how traumatized she must have been. And then when she went on to mention in the book how she never told anybody about it, and I thought, that is so typical. That happens so many times. I've uncovered so many incidents of that. But that's because black women, and girls even, were taught never to put themselves in situations where they would be in jeopardy because their men could not do but so much to protect them. And if those men were called upon to protect them, then they themselves would be in jeopardy. So black girls and women shoulder the responsibility not just for their own well-being, but for the well-being of men. Those were some of the real consequences that people experienced as a result of uh, massive resistance. Perhaps I see things differently, like peace between you and me is the natural order of interaction, acting like we all God's children, regardless of the factions we fall into or the composition of our genetic tissue. We are human beings, one and the same. Shame we can't hold hands and profess love for one another, my sisters and brothers of the divine creation. What is it you are waiting for, apocalypse? Token desegregation really defines the initial wave. It's really not until the late 1960s, early 1970s that you have any sort of meaningful desegregation in the state of Virginia. NAACP lawyers fought and won more cases in Virginia than in any other place and just continually hammered away on every front, you began to have Virginia really standing out as a leader in a different way than it had previously. I applied for another management position. Mr. Baker, the personnel manager, he invited me into his office and he shut the door. I should have known I was in trouble. He said, what do you want now? How many ways do I have to tell you? You're never going to get anywhere around here because you don't have the experience and you won't get it either. When I got to the car, I said, why God, why? Why me? I knew he was gonna make me fight. And all the way home, I argued, God, no, please don't make me do this. This experience, which for many years quieted Betty, um, impacted her becoming a strong, decisive, assertive woman. Her spirit is so indomitable that she persists. I persevered, and in 1986, I became the highest-ranking African-American female at that Fortune 500 company. They gave me a $100,000 education, and baby, I'm using it now. <laughs> She still feels the pain of those experiences, and yet she's managed to resist the hatred and bitterness that can come out of it. I um, gave a book to a young woman once, and um, she, had, she had done a good deed for me. A couple of days later, I got an email from her, and the email read, that what you said happened to you when you were a little girl happened to me. My life has been blessed by your story. 
the current direction of scholarship is to begin to examine the stories of the lesser knowns. And in that, you get not only the triumphs, you get the tragedies. You get the other side of the story, which is what we need in order to fairly evaluate the period that has passed so that we can figure out what avenues we need to take to continue to make progress. We cannot just present our kids with uh, a picture and a model of perfect success in overcoming, because that isn't very realistic. You know, there's a lot of pain involved in those sorts of struggles, and we do a disservice to our children if we don't share that. To share with us and to share with the world things that she did not, uh, that she could not even voice to her own family, helps us to understand where some of the anger and rage comes from as a result of living and existing in a racist society. The lost cause idea that the Civil War was not fought over the issue of race but of Southern rights, uh, that race was no problem in the South before the Civil War, uh, closed off any open public discussion. Uh, of these very troublesome issues. Increasingly, as we tell the story of people like Betty, and we encourage those people to tell their own stories, then these 13-year-old girls and boys and other young people will realize, you don't have to be Dr. King. You don't have to be Julian Bond. You don't have to be Ruby Dora Smith Robinson. You don't have to be famous. These were young folks. Some of them in Birmingham were eight, nine, ten years old who were willing to go to jail. So if you begin to show people that these were people like them who were the agents of change, it can help to liberate them to the point where they understand they can actually do something. They don't have to wait for somebody to show them the way. Now allow these thoughts to soak into your better consciousness and grow flowers in your mind. Reclaim the beauty of mankind, for while I sat seeking life, I almost looked beyond love, but now love is all that is within my sight. Well, that was my granddaughter that played me in the documentary. And that was uh, the white-haired professor he was the first one to make me realize the importance of my very own story. If you put yourself in my shoes, what would it take for you to go from being terrorized to hello cousin? For me, it was years of my father telling me that hate was like taking poison to hurt someone else, and the only person that you hurt is yourself. It took looking back over my life and determining who was going to stop me from fulfilling my dreams and then accomplishing my dreams despite the obstacles? I couldn't prevent these circumstances any more than Phoebe could prevent her family from owning slaves and connecting us by blood. Therefore, if it was going to be, it was up to Phoebe and me to make a difference in this world. On page 172, in our book, Cousins, my chapter entitled, I Am Free, I wrote, when I realized that I had the ability to learn and to make good grades, I knew that there was something wrong with the many things that I assumed about myself. I had accepted as fact what some individuals in white society, teachers and others of influence had said, intentionally meaning to hurt me 
and keep me in a state of low self-esteem. I go on to write, I am responsible for the decisions that I make, my actions and responses to situations. I am responsible to seek the truth and acknowledge my history. Therefore, nearly 25 years later, in 2007, Phoebe, a European-American woman, contacts me. I thank God she waited until I was ready to take this journey with her. I needed every bit of that time to respo respond, hello, cousin. So I saw that documentary the first time, the first night I met Betty. Wow, wasn't that something? Look who I had connected with, a very strong and powerful woman. I was uh, blown away. Well, I met Betty that night, and I met some of her family members. But then Betty, I was living in Virginia at the time, but Betty went back to Texas where she was living. So I had to figure out how could I get more in, uh, in touch with this family and uh, learn more about them and be more connected. So um, I realized that her brother, James, lived uh, in Front Royal, and maybe I could work with him. Um, so he and I, uh, he had a, uh, an activist group and that was very interested in honoring this history, this civil rights history, and particularly their father's bravery for, for going to the NAACP to register that case. So we worked together and were able to get a Virginia Department of Historic Resources marker put up in front of that school that they desegregated. And we got the school board to insert this history into the school curriculum, at least for a while. Working with James together on these activities, and Betty joined us when she could from Texas, really helped cement our relationship. But after several years, I began to ask myself, what was I doing? Was I doing enough? What could and should I do personally? How should I make amends for my family's participation in slavery, Jim Crow, and everything since, including my own racism? I decided to ask Betty what she thought. And she said, you didn't enslave anyone. You don't need to do anything more than you're already doing. But I just couldn't let that go. I kept thinking, what would be something that they would appreciate? And then it came to me, education. They had put their lives on the line for, the, for education. So with their uh, advice and consent, in 2004, I established the F Kilby Family Endowed Scholarship Fund that benefits descendants of persons my family enslaved. Three of Betty's grandchildren received scholarships to attend college, college this year. When Betty and I wrote Cousins, our book, we decided that we would donate all our author's proceeds from the sale of the book to that scholarship fund. So in conclusion, you may ask yourself, what has guided us spiritually through this journey? And I would have to say that it has been Psalm 8510, which says, truth and mercy have met together, justice and peace have kissed. We see that place, that is the place of reconciliation. When you can bring all these together, truth, mercy, justice, and peace. 
We learned this from coming to the table trainings, which were led by CJP faculty and staff. So think on this a minute. Do you see this in our story, the truth and the mercy, the justice and the peace? Are you inspired to make it part of your story? Now it is time for us to stop talking and to open this conversation to hear what you have to say. We would be glad to answer your questions from our story and our new book. We don't have too much time here, but afterwards we'll be in common grounds so that you can come there and ask some of your questions. Betty? Well, we want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you at our table, experiencing an incredible meal of healing and grace. We will be selling our book outside and in the cafeteria uh, at lunchtime. Thank you. So is anybody brave enough to have a question? here too. Kevin has a mic here. Don't be shy. I haven't a question, but I do have a comment. Okay. I grew up in Rappahannock County, and I knew all the individuals involved in each of the books. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad to say that I'm thrilled to see the movement that you are involved with. And I think it's destined to become a movie. <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> yes. Oh, a shock. Hey, one of my classmates. <laughs> Hi, Phoebe. Um, wonderful to see you after 18 years. We were classmates <laughs> together in 2003. And um, this is just a comment. I had um, in, in my class, which we teach uh, human behavior, I had prescribed a documentary on uh, stories of a generation. And I was pleasantly surprised in the stories of a generation, a Netflix documentary that you guys must watch. I was surprised to see these wonderful people in that documentary. I was blown away. <laughs> and then I made my students watch that as well. I'm not sure if some of my students are still here. It became a big, well, there are some guys who were, I advertised it widely for you. And I'm so happy that this story of reconciliation is making its way not only in the US, but all over the world. And I wrote emails to my students in India, you can watch, in the peace building class, you should watch this documentary. And these two people who are starring in that are my friends. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's the, uh, Netflix re released a documentary on Christmas Day 2021 and it's called Stories of a Generation with Pope Francis, and Betty and I are in episode two. Any other comments or questions? Hi, I'm uh, Janet Loker, and I went to Broadway High School back in the 1960s, 1969, 1968, and we had accepted the first African Americans and what I learned from the video, I'm asking you a question. Broadway apparently admitted the first African-Americans when no other high schools did. Do you all know anything about that? I'm sorry, I don't know about that. This is Broadway High School? Broadway High School, mm-hmm. In what county? Uh, Rockingham County. Rocky, this county. Yeah, it's Broadway. Just, just down yeah. the road from here. And yeah. they, you say they, uh, 
admitted the first African-American in a public on, school here in um, Virginia? Yes. It well, was good for video. them. We'll have to look into and that. Yeah, it's interesting. Because I was very proud to be from Broadway. And, and we accepted the, the two African-American uh, males, and they became very popular in our school. But I wish I could now ask them how they felt yes. about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I always assumed, oh, they, they had a, a good time. But, I, but I'm thinking they probably have stories they need to tell. I'm sure they do. So. What year was that, do you think, that um, that happened? What, um, 1968 is my first guess. Well, that wouldn't have been the first because Betty was in, admitted in 1959. Exactly. That's why I'm so confused. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's be, I don't know. It, obviously, um, it, it, it may have been the first after um, the Civil Rights Act of 64 when they were pressed. That's when school uh, desegregation was really um, pushed by the federal government. There needed to be... A Supreme Court ruling doesn't just make it happen. You have to have Congress pass laws. And um, it may have been the first school system that had an approved desegregation plan or something like that. It's all I can guess. Thank you. A question. I attended the school that you refer to in the book, Manassas Regional High School. Yes. I went there and graduated there because I'm from Luray, Virginia, originally, and we could not attend, we couldn't go to school there, not to the white schools. So the county paid for us to go to Manassas or we could come to Harrisonburg. My parents decided I would go to Manassas where I stayed all week, coming home on weekends. I found it interesting when uh, Betty had in her book about um, her brother, Jimmy. I know him, I met him coming through the table over here. And uh, I was quite astonished. I never saw him anymore until I ran into him at a funeral in Front Royal. And I was questioning his experience there because I didn't share the same experience he had at Manassas. I found it a wonderful place for black students to be. And we achieved much there. Matter of fact, I was a salutatorium of a class and most of the people from Luray were. So finally they made it because we only went there one or two years, they scaled it down. We could not hold those positions. So that left it open to the people from Front Royal. I do remember when the Front Royal students left there and went to Warren High School and other schools, but um, it's interesting. And I wish I had time to talk with her more and with, uh, I'd like to see Jimmy again. I haven't seen him in such a long time, but it, it was an experience going to Manassas. It was, thank you. Well, we can connect you with him. He still lives in Front Royal if you want to. I guess it's time for us to end here because it just flipped to 11 o'clock, but we thank you for coming. Did you need to make some announcements before the end here? Um, I think just to remind everyone of the things you all have already said, so um, Betty and Phoebe will be outside here for a few minutes to sign their books, and then they're going to go over to Common Grounds to continue this discussion. So if you didn't get a chance to ask a question or make a comment, um, I'd really encourage you to go over to Common Grounds and spend some more time talking. Then they'll be in the foyer of the cafeteria around 1.30, um, also talking and uh, a chance to meet them and... and uh, get their books. Those are the announcements. The other thing I want to say is, I don't know how many of you know that today is SGA day, the first ever, uh, starting at 1.30 in Common Grounds, where students and faculty will be in a kind of informal conversation about uh, how do we keep going as a school? What, how should EMU be? How should we do our work together after, after COVID? So that's the beginning of a whole day of events that I encourage you to, to check out. Personally, I'm really excited about uh, dodgeball. So. 
But one more uh, just round of applause for our guests here.